Hey, Adam, we're back. Oh, Pastor Matt. It's been a long time, my friend. Hey, Dr. Adam. It's been Adam. too long. Dr. Adam, <laughs> it's good to hear your voice. We are back. It's been a long time. It's been a uh, while. What, what have you been doing? I, I moved. I, I live in Austin now. There are tacos. It's really nice. I moved as well. I actually tried to move closer to you, at which point you moved to Austin, and I feel a little hurt about it. I'm sorry, I guess. Uh, All right. I'll, I'm, not I'll, that, I'll I'm not that sorry. I'm not that sorry. I mean, I'm into tacos. There's probably no one more into tacos. I, I, if I played that clip out loud here in Austin, there would be riots. And, <laughs> and, and, and we've, got some, we've got some new friends, too, Adam. This season, our show, Technicolor Jesus, is presented alongside our partner, The Christian Century, which is a magazine for progressive church leaders. Adam, The Century has been around for a long time, and I'm pretty excited to be in such good company. I am, too. They're doing really great work right now. And we've also got some new theme music. All right. All right. This, yeah. is, this is becoming a professional operation, Matt. Yeah, it's very close. All right, you want to hear the music? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are talking with Bromley McClanahan about the worst sex ed class I've ever seen, which is Brian Danley's 2004 film, Saved. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher who now resides in the great state of Pennsylvania. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for some conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest, Bromley McClanahan, has asked us to go see Saved, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we will ask her what Saved has to do with life and ministry and theology and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Saved for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be September 3rd, the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest for the week, Bromley McClanahan is an ordained United Methodist pastor and a widely published author, including in the pages of the Christian Century, and particularly of the 2016 book, Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. I'd ask some follow-up questions about even just that title, Bromley, but I'm pretty sure we're going to get into it as we dig into this movie. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. I am so excited to be with you. It is, uh, yeah, it's awesome. A friend of mine was on your show a while ago, and I was, like, super jealous. So when I got the invite, I'm like, all right, here we go. Well, let's do it. Let's talk about this movie, Brian Danley Saved, produced actually by Michael Stipe of R.E.M. This is a movie with a fundamentalist purity culture purely in its sights. Our hero is Mary, played by Jenna Malone, a student at a Christian high school who briefly thinks that Jesus wants her to have sex with her gay boyfriend to help him not be gay anymore. And of course, as always happens in teenage sex movies, she gets pregnant on the first try. 
has to navigate the perils of that pregnancy in a school full of some fairly self-righteous fundamentalists, most notably her best friend Hilary Fay, played by Mandy Moore. So it's kind of a high school sex comedy and kind of a savage take on fundamentalism. When it came out, it was scandalous to the Christian right, but kind of a non-event for folks on the outside, not a huge splash at the box office, but it's grown a cult status over time. And my hunch is that if it didn't still have something to say to us about adolescence and theology and sexuality, that probably we still wouldn't be talking about it. So Bromley, I freely admit that I'm a neophyte. I just watched this movie for the first time last night and I'm still digesting. But I'd love to hear from you. Justify my faith. How can Saved help us think about ministry and the church? So you mentioned this book or this movie came out in 2004. I was uh, in grad school at the time, and I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater. Our first child was born in 2007. So now I only see animated movies in theaters. Um, so uh, but but this one I actually caught when it came out and and it was sort of like right in my wheelhouse. Um, I was in school and I was starting my thesis on Christian approaches to adolescent sexuality. I was looking at a lot of different um, Christian sex ed curricula and being both, you know, pleasantly surprised and absolutely horrified and, you know, sort of lukewarm about some options too. Um, And then also then publicly, we were in the midst of um, George W. Bush's presidency, which saw an uptick both in the sort of like faith and um, social services, sure. uh, you know, partnerships, partnerships, um, uh, and also an uptick in abstinence-only education programs. So, so this, so this movie was in a sense very timely for me, but also I think in this cultural moment. So I. I've loved it for a long time, not only because it's interesting to me and sort of asking questions that I think are important, um, but mostly because it's really funny. Um, I mean, I think it's really funny. Um, I went, I chaperoned maybe even that summer, a work tour trip for a a church and, and like the worship leader was pastor skip. I mean, so anyway, the satire to me felt really spot on. Um, the use of, of language, you know, the, the use of an article for, we've never had a gay at American Eagle before. Um, the, uh, but then also, you know, she's the first Jewish, you know, it's just so like subtly horrifying, um, that it's funny anyway. So I loved it cause it was funny. Um, but also because I do think it raises some really great questions and, and, I continue to show it to like confirmation students and stuff on retreats. Cause I think even in the main line, our teenagers often have this sense that faith is about kind of generally being a good person and doing the right thing and that things are going to work out for them if they do that. And so this central question of sort of like Mary thinks she's doing the right thing and it ends up, posing some major problems for her life, uh, you know, I, I think is really pressing. It, it raises this question of, well, how does God work in our lives and, and how are we supposed to live and make faithful choices? So that's, that's why I think it's, that's at least part of why I think it's still relevant. Yeah. And who do we look to, to help us make those moral choices, which is a really important part of this movie as well, right? Is that the, right. uh, that there are a number of options, authority figures and communities 
who are offering different ways to make choices or to 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 look at or to devise some criteria for deciding what's right or what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And and right and with some. I mean, the kids, when we showed this to our last confirmation class, they thought it was pretty, you know, a pretty savage takedown. And and to me, it felt, you know, to, to me, it feels a little more subtle, like, um, you know, Pastor Skip is confused, but he's trying, you know. Um, uh, Patrick is his son, and, and he seems to have a pretty reasonable sense of uh, the complexity of faith. I'm a preacher's kid too, so I appreciate that the preacher's kid is the wise one. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but the adults they're like confused, but the, but they're trying. Even the um, teacher who's sort of always just smiling along when she finds a picture of Mary's sonogram, she's she's sort of not going to turn her over right away. You know, there's this moment of she's trying to look out yeah. for. I thought that was um, a really powerful moment in the movie. I did too. So actually. glanced over, but it's a really interesting beat from a character that we don't really get any much other kind of exposure to. Yeah. So I, part of my question is th- this movie comes out the same year as Mean Girls mm-hmm. and, 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 and putting them back to back, I, I was very tempted when I finished watching them last night, just to go watch Mean Girls as a, as a follow-up and I, I didn't do it, but it's, they, they seem like such an interesting match set because uh, mean Girls makes some some claims about just the fundamental meanness of adolescence uh, and the ways in which that time can bring out all of our worst characteristics and our worst instincts. And some of that is on display here and saved as well. But they mm-hmm. seem to. Th- so I guess the question for me is 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 saved saying that. Adolescents are, can be mean-spirited people regardless of whether they're in Christian schools or not, or safe saying that being in this kind of purity culture makes people particularly mean-spirited. I mean, is Hilary Faye a product of being a, a, a teenage girl, or is she a product of being in this kind of fundamentalist industry? Yeah, is she like a queen bee? That's the, right? Isn't that the nonfiction book that Mean Girls is based on, queen bees and wannabes? Yep. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think part of it, I, I think her self-righteousness is part of the way that the community talks about faith and, and encourages folks to think about faith. Pastor Skip asks her, and those remaining in the jewels to be warriors on the front for Jesus, you know, to, to really, you know, um, sort of empowers them, you know, to, to bully, (laughs) to bully Mary, um, into righteousness. Um, and, and so I think there are some, some unique things about Christianity too, but, but, but like Cassandra, I mean, one of the moments that I hate the most is, we can we can assume that, you know, thirteen years out we can have spoilers, right? Um, oh yeah, to be sure. Okay, great. So you know, there's this moment that uh, that uh, Cassandra and um, oh shoot, what's the brother's name? Roland. Um, Roland, thank you. That Macaulay Culkin, uh, yeah. I just call him Macaulay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it seems more reasonable. Um, Kevin from uh, um, but that. <laughs> Cassandra and Roland uh, set up 
Hillary Faye. Like they reveal all these photos of her from when she was sure. um, sort of before she turned into. It's my least favorite part of this movie, by the way. Right, it is because here here are those who have been bullied who are now turning around and, and bullying themselves. Um, so I don't like that because I want them to be better than that, right? And and I don't want Mary to be involved in that, though she seems surprised, I guess. I don't, you know, I think it's played that she doesn't know that it's happening. Um, but, uh, but, but, but to some extent, it's sort of, that's maybe more realistic, right? I mean, like teenagers do try to get each other back for stuff, right? I mean, it's not, so, so anyway, so I think this movie has a, a sense of teenagers as both sort of slightly more useless than, uh, well, no, I don't know. I guess the teenagers generally come off better than the adults, right? Um, which, as an adult now, I am not as wild about. I look back at my teenage self and I just roll my eyes at myself and cringe a little. Um, but... Yeah, but but it, I think it's still sort of aware that they make mistakes, that they're short-sighted, right? So you know, you know, it, as you as you talk right now, Bromley, I'm I'm thinking. I felt for the adults and I felt for the young people. The thing the 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 thing that doesn't get off is the structural system that's sort of right that that ever that this movie is truly aiming at. Right. The movie begins with Mary saying. Um, I I have I have been born again my whole life. Right. Which is a very funny statement mm-hmm. because it misunderstands what this idea of born again both coming from scripture but also just coming from um what conversion to any type of new identity might look like. You can't be born into it and call yourself converted. Right. Right. It's um and the system and the structure, uh, this purity structure that Matt referenced earlier, is the thing that's holding both the adults hostage and these young people who are trying to form themselves according to the models that are available and right. don't quite understand how to do that because they've been nothing but born again, right? They don't have the critical distance and no one is offering them the critical distance to actually look at this system. And the only people who do have the critical distance are the outsider, the Jewish student who acts out, mm-hmm. and um, and the other sort of broken thing, so to speak, which is um, the Macaulay Culkin character who's in a wheelchair. Well, it's the, it's the people who have experienced loss. Yeah. So Macaulay Culkin, you know, Roland has experienced tragedy. Uh, Cassandra has experienced tragedy. And it grants them the perspective of having gone through some kind of grief or some kind of wrestling with the 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 kind of theology of providence that's on display in the film, and and it's what Mary gets to go through too, as she you know kneels in front of the the cross and offers up a pretty profane prayer. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it in the landscape of the film, it grants her perspective on on that system that in some ways the, the adults don't even get to, um, which is, which is the shame of it. Which is true that the adults don't get to, but this is the interesting thing and why I think this movie can be a little bit more astute than it's maybe giving credit, which is tragedy can also push people into that system because it provides easy answers. So for instance, 
Mary's father dies when she's really right. young. And you can see that in her mother. And and I can I can envision the backstory of the mother searching for something, searching for an answer, searching for a stable community because she has to raise her daughter alone. Right. Searching for a group of people who are nice and she knows that when she puts her daughter in the midst of this community that they're ultimately going to care for her. Now, whether or not that's true or not, like that's the outside perception of that particular community. And that's why it's so attractive to so many people. Uh, and 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 just speaking from my own experience, I grew up in a, a very conservative evangelical world and I was brought into that world, ushered into that world because my mother had divorced my father and was looking for a community because she didn't have one any longer. And they offered her one and they were like, come and be around us and we will love you. Um, and it's only later as she sort of has sort of grown in her own maturity that she's been, a been able to ask questions of whatever that community was providing. But I, it's this, this movie is strong, is smart enough to recognize that that's that community is both enticing and totally able to eat its own. Yeah. What is, um, interesting to me about folks who grow up in, um, really, uh, tightly knit religious communities is that they don't, I mean, they may know the theology of their community very well, but they don't always know their other theological options. Now I grew up in a pretty like, you know, whatever, like a mainline Methodist church, like highly churched there. But, um, but, but certainly, and I work in a, you know, I work in a UCC in the suburb of Chicago and, um, our teenagers only know about Jesus, what we tell them, you know? Um, so, uh, so we're very careful, <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but these kids, they know something, but they don't kind of know what the options are. And, and it's been interesting to me as I publish this book, um, you know, so, uh, I was not responsible for the title. Um, I mean, I had to sign off on it. Right. But, um, but, but what they wanted to signal was like, here was a, a Christian sex book that was going to actually talk about sex for people who weren't married. Right. Um, and, uh, and what's been interesting to me is that, I mean, I, I wanted to sort of, I didn't want to make a case for why unmarried people should feel okay having sex. Um, as a pastor, I know that unmarried people are having sex, right? As someone who reads whatever, sure. as someone who's alive, I know that, right, okay. So, um, but, uh, so I didn't want to make a case. I just, that, that wasn't an interesting question for me, right? Like, it's not, you know, whether you should or you shouldn't, it's how should you, um, and not in terms of, you know, follow this diagram, you know, but, but how should you treat one another and how can you, you know, um, you know, sort of the emotional, whatever, navigate the emotional landscape of desire, um, with some theological reasoning anyway. So, but, but that set of questions, um, was so outside of like the conversation that certain sectors of the church were having. They're like, no, no, like, I mean, they didn't, they don't even know how to have that conversation. Um, so anyway, so I think what's interesting to me, like about uh, this community is they don't even know, it's just, is this right or is this wrong? This is wrong. You know, it's not, how could this possibly be 
Christian or how, you know, how could somebody be a Christian and be gay or pregnant or whatever or get divorced? Or, yeah, sure. So, so my question is then what do you all think about the, the, the kind of moral theology that is, uh, that the movie uses to replace the theology that, that you've outlined? I mean, so we have, you know, uh, the kind of slow dismantling of this, of this kind of purity culture and purity theology and the, the idea that, um, uh, that, that God needs you and Jesus is calling you to act in very specific moral ways and with this very specific um, layers of behavior. Uh, that doesn't entirely, I mean, the movie doesn't then reject the entire idea of God or Christianity as it goes along. Mm -hmm. It has a, a slightly more gentle touch and it ends up putting together a, a, a kind of a theology of, of, welcome an invitation to some degree a theology of acceptance of kind of god made you as you are how did that how did, did are you comfortable with the theology that this movie lands on maybe not in a systematic way <laughs> 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 i mean i do think that i i mean i think there are like pockets of wisdom right i mean um uh, uh at, at the end when patrick and his dad are are you know uh pastor skip says there's no gray area here and patrick says it's all gray area right. like well no it's not all gray area i mean but but that doesn't mean that you know there shouldn't be gay teenagers um uh so so i you know not that but but i do think there's also you know but there's also some wisdom here about how we have the opportunity to respond. We have the opportunity to choose our response. And to me, that's, I mean, yeah, they're a little more providential than I want to be. I mean, I love the mother. Um, it's, she's played by Mary Louise Parker, right? Who's so great. And yeah, um, a treasure. she is, so she keeps watching, um, she's watching this quiz show, you know, throughout the movie and, and earlier on in an earlier scene, she gets every question wrong. And then, uh, after she sort of decided to follow pastor Skip's suggestion to send pregnant Mary off to mercy house, um, she's watching the quiz show again and she gets every answer, right. And this is like a sign. This is this providential sign that, you know, no, she needs to, you know, do something different. Um, and she's going to stand by her daughter and, and help her out. And they're going to figure this out. So, so, I mean, yeah, that's a little more, that's a little more providential than I tend to like to go. But, um, but at the same time, there's this sense that things are messy and, and sometimes we have to take a chance and, you know, um, we have to figure out how to make something, you know, make something lovely out of whatever there is. I mean, the, the, I don't like that the end of the prom scene where they're all kind of, you know, I mean, that, that's the one where you're like, you know, all right, guys, someone needed to edit the script a little bit more. It's just like more heavy handed as they're all kind of standing there. But then the following scene after the baby is born and the, the um, boyfriend or not the boyfriend, the gay boyfriend is so excited about having the baby and they're all there together. And I don't know. I mean, that's sort of lovely. It was. You know, so, it is. It's, it's, it's like actually nice, quite moving. Yeah. So it, um, it is. I, I, Matt. I think to your to your question too. What I what I want from this theology, 
is the thing that's dangerous when we talk about adolescence and sex, which is, I think, our discussions of sex and just bodies in general almost always, at least within the U.S. church, bracket out pleasure. Yeah. And, um, and we have a very narrow and shallow theology of pleasure within the, the Christian church in the, in the United States in particular. And, um, and I think when, when we start talking about pleasure and we start, and it's among our young people, that makes us especially anxious sure. for any number of different reasons, because we might, we, we might advocate for sex as, as this pleasurable thing that they might actually like doing. And then it might ruin their life because they have a child at 16 or 17 or 18. Um, and so we kind of pretend like it's not great. Um, or it can't be great as long as you are not in a committed relationship or you're not in that. Right. Um, so, so, but I, I kept watching this movie and thinking, what, what changes when we look to our ideas of sex to like octogenarians, right? When, when the subject of, of the ideas about sex are not people who are ready to procreate, but of people who can no longer procreate. And we sort of remove that um, from, the, from the equation. I think we might have a better time thinking about why sex as a pleasurable act might be good. And then maybe we can then bring that back into the conversation with young people. I just think this, this movie and most of the, the conversations around sex with young people tend to sort of bracket out the pleasure side of things. And, and I wonder what detriment that's having to us as a church that's still really struggling with like, the presence of bodies in our midst. Did you see, there was an article, I feel like that was maybe just posted today on Quartz um, about uh, basically we should have taught our kids that sex was fun. What's it's, uh, oh yeah, we forgot to teach our kids how to have fun sex. Um, it's a subtle title, but um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, sex in this movie and in uh I feel like a lot of Christian conversation is instrumentalized, right? Like sex is something that for men gets you pleasure, but also depending on your marital status, uh, shame, um, for women or girls, uh, sex is something that gets you affection or, um, or, you know, is your marital duty or gives you children or whatever. Um, or depending on your marital status, shame. Um, but, and for Mary, uh, sex is something that she is going to give up. She's going to make this sacrifice with the hope that Jesus is going to restore her virginity in order to trade, uh, you know, for, for um, Dean's healing, right? Um, but sex is never sex in and of itself, Um and I think, I mean, I think you're right. That's. Uh, it's not a very sex sounding? positive movie. I mean, at the end of the day, like it's. I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I, th I think y'all are. Think 
I think y'all are right in the general, in the broader strokes, societal stuff, to be sure. But I think there's an argument to be made that Roland and Cassandra are modeling a kind of sex-positive relationship. Oh, I don't yeah. think the movie is not sex-positive, necessarily. I mean, I don't... I just think that that's true in larger yeah. Christian conversations. But no, yeah, Roland and, uh, and Cassandra are great characters. And I mean, there's some nice romantic setups with, uh, you know, I mean... There's a moment when Patrick's about to try to kiss her for the first time, you know, and like, you're like, oh, you know, I mean, they've got something there. I think part of our problem, both in the way that we talk about sex in the conservative church and in the liberal church, is that we don't we don't actually like name the experience of it. We're so anxious about whatever it is that we're anxious about, if it's pregnancy or it's disease or whatever, um, or, you know, boundary breaking, you know, that we don't actually help uh, teenagers to make meaning of their experiences. So we're like failing theologically because we're not giving them the tools to make meaning of this. And, and, and we're so convinced that they're going to like immediately start sleeping together. Um, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that always gets me in, in teen movies, in, uh, TV shows. Um, I don't know, probably you guys didn't watch Dawson's Creek back in the day, but the thing that even then just irritated the living, you know, daylights out of me was, um, they were always asking about like whether or not they should sleep together after they'd like kissed sort of twice with like their mouths closed. Right. It's like, you guys. Like, just enjoy the kissing for a while, <laughs> you know? Eventually, you won't have time for all of that endless kissing. Um, and uh, and then you will be sad. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, no, I think you're right that um, we need to, to help them to sort of make sense of, of their experiences better. Um, and I think that's what these characters are kind of trying to do. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's why we show it to our confirmation kids. We want them to... We want, I mean, we don't want any of them to think that they should have sex with each other in order to cure anyone of gayness, um, you know, but but rather we want them to see kids wrestling with how to make sense of what happens to them and what choices they make and how they treat each other. I think that's a great place for us to move on. Before we do it, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with The Christian Century. And listeners out there, I want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. In the most recent issue, media writer Catherine Rickless discusses Catherine Bigelow's new movie, Detroit, and the myth of white innocence. So check that out. Adam, have you seen Detroit yet? No, I've been meaning to see it. I love Catherine Bigelow. I think The Hurt Locker might be the best movie of the last 25 years. I think that movie is incredible. I, that's, that's high praise, but it is a fabulous movie. And I'm, I'm really interested in the kind of the, the conversation around Detroit, which I haven't seen either. It's been a yeah. little mixed, and I'm, I'm curious to see what, what Catherine had to say about that as well. Yeah, I think, she's, I think she's a superlative director. I think she's one of the best filmmakers making movies right now. And so I'm really excited to see it. I think she's great. Well, go see the movie and then go check out the commentary in Christian Century. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. So for more information, go visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Bromley, let's move on. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're going to look at the lectionary passages for this Sunday, year A, the 22nd Sunday of Ordinary Time, September 3rd. 
Exodus 3 brings us Moses in the burning bush. Matthew 16 has Jesus arguing with Peter about the sacrifices he's bound to make, get behind me, Satan, etc. Jeremiah 15 finds the prophet wrestling with the consequences of having spoken God's uncomfortable truth. And in Romans 12, we've got a series of aphorisms for the church community in Rome. So, Bromley, start us off. As you think about saved, what resonates for you with the preaching task for the week? Um, I love, I mean, these are such great texts, so and I don't quite know how, to, how I would pull them all together. But if I was focusing on one or two, um, the first one that really strikes me uh, is, is, of course, in Exodus 3, we have, um, you know, Moses's call, which he tries to deny in a variety of ways, and who can blame him? Um, but, but I think that that's sort of interesting, because, of course, in Saved, um, a variety of people feel called to do things, right? Mary feels like she has received a vision and her, her task is, is to help Dean, um, which in some ways she does. Right. Um, uh, and, and at, at another point, um, Hillary Fay says that, uh, um, you know, Jesus trusts me, you know, uh, which I, I feel is so bold. I mean, maybe you can only be 16 years old to say that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. I don't trust me. I'm like, yeah. It's like there's this go-to yeah. line, <laughs> know thyself. If I knew myself, I'd run away, right? <laughs> like, okay, but but Jesus trusts Hillary Bay. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, so there's this whole sense of like – and then at other points, too, I mean um, – this is a, a praying community, right? They are praying for answers. They are looking for guidance. And uh, on more than one occasion, the interpretation that they do of, of their call or their, you know, instruction is, is probably not divinely inspired, ultimately, right? Um, you know, frame your friend is probably not... Uh, <laughs> from God. Right. Um, so anyway, so I think that the, the call story of Moses asks, you know, just poses this question, like, how do you know if a call is from God? And, um, and <laughs> is it your unwillingness to take it, you know, but, or, or is it because it is rooted in the suffering of people? Uh, but so that's, that's the one thing that I think kind of is interesting. Yeah. That's uh, just jumping onto that passage. One of the things that strikes me in there is kind of the difference between, the 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 god on the mountaintop and the god who kind of walks alongside us and even though moses experiences god up on that mountaintop in this kind of big transcendent moment the the narrative that god gives in, th in that passage is i'm the god who walked with your ancestors right? i'm the god who was with abraham and joseph and isaac i'm the god who's been with you this whole time and it, it, it seems like there's a, some of that tension shows up in Saved, where you have the giant Buddy Jesus statue, right, that is kind of worshipped and, and idolized in its own way. And the destruction of it isn't a destruction, I think, in the film of, of Jesus or of the idea of God in the movie. It's, it's a, a way of kind of dismantling a certain pedestal and then allowing us to recognize the God walking alongside. Adam, were there passages that jumped out for you as you thought about saved? Yeah, I was looking at the Matthew 16 passage, which I think is um, is so interesting and um, pregnant, so to speak, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> I see what you yeah, did there. I got it in. I got it in there. Uh-huh. So, um, so in the Matthew passage, you know, Peter's having this discussion with his, or Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples, mainly Peter. Peter says, look, you don't have to go and die. And Jesus says, yes, I do. And then says, like, get behind me, Satan. Um, and then goes on and does this cryptic thing where he says, you know, in order to gain a life, you have to lose it. And I want to be mindful that this particular passage and this idea of sacrifice has been weaponized to hurt the vulnerable a lot, mm-hmm. actually. And um, and I think it's important that churches do their own sort of sacrifice audits um, mm-hmm. to make sure that they know um, who is disproportionately bearing the weight of sacrifice in their in their churches. Because I think um, that'll give them some sense about uh, about where uh, where the gospel, where they are failing to proclaim the gospel as Christ did. Uh, that said, I think that there is something about these moments of shedding identity and loosening or abandoning parts of you that are actually just performing piety, mm-hmm. um, where you make your own piety your idol or your own virginity your idol. Um, or we abandon those parts of ourselves that are built for some other sake, for someone else's sake, so that we might perform appropriately for them or for the community or for the structure or system. Um, and when you're able to like abandon that, it does feel like you've been born again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are these moments where you feel like, oh, that died, and now I actually feel alive. And See, that's, I, that's positive to me. And there are moments, and I think the most, I mean, per- perhaps the most powerful moment in the movie is when Jenna Malone has this profane prayer, right? It is her conversion moment in some sense, because it's the first time it seems that she has said something this like brutally honest to God. And no one had ever taught her how to pray this way. But after realizing that the performance that she was performing was not actually uh, authentic. She was able to sort of get beyond whatever that exterior image was. So, you know, it's really hard to see God through this facade that we build for ourselves, these masks that we wear in daily life or even in our churches. And so there's this moment where Jesus says, get behind me. I just think that that, you know, uh, that idea of like, what's in front of you that you want to put behind you? And it might be someone who's like laying an obstacle. It might be some temptation, or it might be like the mask that you wear or that you really want to wear. And you have to put that behind you because ultimately it's getting in the way of you seeing God or realizing God's mission for your life. I think you're right that sacrifice is like so hard and problematic and, and certainly, um, yes, 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 yes. So, but I think that part of why this is one of my more favorite passages is, is I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of, of not so much a call to sacrifice, but, um, a call to risk taking, um, the, uh, the gospel as one in which we, we recognize the sort of inherent 
gamble of life um, and and kind of pursue it anyway. Um, you know, purity culture, to me, I mean, one of the things that is so sympathetic about it to me is that there's this sense that, like, you can protect your kids. Like, if you just tell them not to do anything fun. No, you know, I mean, if you just, uh, you know, sort of can can protect them from seeing a fully naked anatomically correct drawing, you know, if you can just keep them from... Um, you know, being profaned in any way, then they will have this like rich, rewarding, godly life. And, and of course, you know, it, it doesn't work out that way. Like God doesn't heap rewards on the virtuous in, you know, and, and, you know, there are plenty of kids who remain fully chaste. There was a, a, a you know, a, a solid swath of the readership of, of my book, um, who are single women who grew up in evangelical circles, um, who are now in their thirties and, and are not, are not married, you know? And so they waited and they did everything right. And they waited and, you know, their husband hasn't shown up yet, Mm. you know? And so, um, you know, and, and really wrestling with the sort of like, you know, how, you know, how do I live as a fully actualized person, whatever that means, you know, um, comfortable yeah, with really, my body and my sexuality, I, you know. I really like this reading because in that moment, like, what's Peter doing then? He's trying to protect Jesus to mm-hmm. some extent. And, yeah. and, and himself, saying, right? And himself. Um, but, and, and the get behind me is like, look, you can't protect me from this. Like, you... Like as much as I'd like to be protected from it, I just don't think we can. I mean, and and if we're thinking about this in the ways that that parents are trying to, and I feel this acutely as a parent, I'm trying to figure out to what extent do I allow danger into the lives of my children? Because I know I can't keep it all out, right? Um, but I know I can keep some of it out, and I can shelter them to some extent. But I also recognize too much shelter will ultimately defeat them too. So you're trying to, and like, I'm, it's a, it feels, it feels very real to me to try and figure out, okay, so like, in what ways do I stand in front of my child and say, don't do that when the best thing for them would be to do that? Yeah. And it's well, not I, for them, it's for me. It's for me. I don't want them to do it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that, I mean, there's all this research about, um, when I was doing my MDiv, I also did a public policy degree. And so like my, um, so my, my sex ed, uh, ministry thesis was also like looking at what was actually good for teenagers. Right. And, and part of, I mean, and even vulnerable teenagers, you know, the, the literature is, you know, how do you help kids to manage risk? Right. Like, how do you give them increasing levels of responsibility and autonomy, you know, and not like, you know, don't, you know, don't throw them in the deep end, but like teach them what to do with increasing levels of responsibility, you know, and 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 freedom. And and I think that's the the main thing. What do we do with increasing levels of freedom? Um, And uh, yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, I think that's a really. And yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, we were just talking with our 10-year-old the other day because she wants to walk home from school by herself. And we're like, oh my God, you know? And I mean, 
it's probably good for her to learn to walk a street in the suburbs by herself at some juncture, right? But, you know, we don't want her to. <laughs> Bromley, earlier you mentioned uh, the the final picture of the movie where this sort of band of misfits has congregated in the ho the hospital room to meet this new baby, and they and they take a picture. And I find myself incredibly moved by this this moment, in part because it it seems like this group of people had finally found a community where they were loved and that they were uh, accepted, and that this child was being born into that community. And yes, there wasn't a father there, or there wasn't, or the father wasn't married to the mother, but there was enough love in that community to support this child. And, you know, in my own experience, as someone who had children fairly late in life, when I was sort of well into my own work with, and my wife was into her own work and my parents were on the other side of the country and we had just moved to a new community, watching this child born into what the culture would see see as unfortunate circumstances made me think about my children and maybe how they were born into some measure of unfortunate circumstances just because they didn't have such a sort of diverse community to be born into. They were well loved, but really they spent a lot of time with me and my wife. And I left that moment just in awe of the ways in which these communities can be formed and become family and this blessing of this child can be born into circumstances that are perhaps not ideal but maybe um maybe they're uh they're exactly what the child will need going forward so as you were watching that final scene what stood out to you and and, and was it as moving as you watched it yeah, I think that's a nice way to think about it. And and two, I mean, you know, Paul's sort of rules and, and wisdom for how the community can live together is sometimes, uh, you know, hard to swallow and, and hard to contextualize. But But I like reading it in this way. And I think that, I mean, while certainly communities can be, um, you know, difficult, let's say. We're all we're talking to an audience of churchgoers, right? We know community can be difficult. Um the uh, uh the, there's something wonderful here and and actually and this is even maybe more counter to the um uh the the way that American evangelicalism and, and even American, you know, mainline uh, yeah. churches are, you know, which is the sort of like valorization of the nuclear family, right? Or, or biological ties, you know, um, even some of the like, um, and I love these people. So, you know, forgive me, but, but some of those folks who were doing Lily work on the family around, you know, 2000, you know, they talk about like how important bio, you know, they wanted to talk about like how important fathers were and how they shouldn't leave. Um, but, uh, but, but they put all this emphasis on like kinship and, and, and blood ties and how, you know, you know, we all want to protect our young. And that just seemed so radically counter to the gospel, mm. you know, of like, no, we're making new families here. We're making new communities. You know, it is not just 
your mother and father, you got to, in fact, probably leave those people and don't even bother burying them if the timing is wrong, you know, but like. And you were uh, born again. You're actually born again born into, again, a new, yeah. into a new community. Yeah. So, what yeah. Is, and the, yeah. One of the interesting tricks at the end of the film for me is is the pastor in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Like you know, because in in a different movie, he would have already he would come into the hospital, and then he and Mary Louise Parker would have uh, a, an exchange of eye glances, and then the picture would include him, and so mm-hmm. we would have like put the nuclear family back together because the missing father figure in Mary's life would have been would have been regathered, and so you mm-hmm. would have like a reconstituted nuclear family. And and we get the glimpse of him in the parking lot, but then he's not actually in the picture at the end. He's still coming yeah. down the hall of the hospital, which I think is yeah. a really, which is a really nice for me kind of subtle way of underscoring what y'all are saying, that it's yeah. it's a new family, but it's a new family that isn't just a way of recreating the old family. It's it's a it's a different kind of arrangement that doesn't yeah. need all the standard pieces that the cultural baggage asks us to expect. I don't know if we figured all of this out, but I, I do know that it's time for us to move on. Unfortunately, that means saying goodbye to Bromley. Uh, Bromley, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I appreciate your wisdom and your insight. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Bromley. All right, now it's time for our last segment, Adam. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam... Talk to me. What's your postlude for the week? So recently, Netflix has been buying every movie that studios pass on. And, yeah, and seriously, every it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming how, much, how many movies and TV and comedy specials they're producing right now. Uh, but it seems that in an effort to begin to build relationships with mega, mega stars, they end up making their movies. Um, when all of the studios pass on their movies. And one of these movies that was made was Brad Pitt's War Machine. Did you watch this, Matt? I have not. I have to confess, I, I don't think I've actually seen a Netflix movie production. I think I've only seen television shows and specials, but I'm trying to think whether I've watched any of their movies. I don't think so. Yeah, the production actually is really good. And uh, the movie is not that good. Um, it's... Uh, it's based on a book whose title is escaping me about the Stanley McChrystal as he was appointed mm-hmm. to be the sort of general in Afghanistan to lead some new uh, new counterinsurgent policy for the Barack Obama administration and how um, that was ultimately a failed plan. Um, it's not a great movie. It's a lot of voiceover. Brad Pitt has sort of brought his accent from uh inglorious bastards but it's not that good it's weird it's a very weird movie it's you can see why a lot of studios passed on it um though it actually has become a little bit more interesting given the recent news about increasing troop presence in afghanistan it might be worth visiting especially the parts about how counterterrorism as a strategy is fundamentally flawed um and how we want to say that we're not nation building but at the same time um Having a bunch of people wandering around your towns with guns doesn't actually enamor you to your neighbors. Sure. Anyway, what I found interesting in this movie was, um, for our purposes in, in church ministry, uh, were the ways in which like l- this large bureaucratic machine of the American military continues to adopt the same strategies over and over to solve these problems. Um, 
the problems with the previous plans, they assume, uh, weren't that the plan was fundamentally flawed, but that the execution was the problem. Right. Uh, I they, see where you're going. They just, <laughs> <laughs> they just need to do what they've been doing, but they just need to do it better. Right? They just need someone with a better system of implementation or to be a more gregarious and charismatic leader. And I couldn't help but watch this movie and think about this in light of the church current struggle sure. and, and the lack of imagination that it has when it comes to its own long-term survival. It seems to me that most churches are saying that the product that we have is good. It's right. But if we could only make it better, then we would attract more people. And sure. the unwillingness to examine that the solution might not be a better implementation of an old plan, but really the need for a new plan. But we need to be critical of the whole enterprise and the assumptions of the church um, so that we're not just making cosmetic changes. So uh, War Machine, it's an interesting movie, but it, it actually does get into questions of like how do large bureaucratic machines rethink how it does its work. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. And I, it, it's doubling back on our conversation about safe to me, which is, as y'all were saying at the very end, like, it's really hard to come up to shed a theological identity. And it's especially really hard to do it uh, when you, um, when that identity has been shaped, it kind of shapes the horizons of everything you've ever known. Like, so, so it's one thing for the church to talk and talk and talk about needing to be different or imagine something different or do it a different way. But it's, it's much harder to actually spell out what that way might be, because the parameters of what we understand church to be are, are so d deeply embedded. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel that like I can I, I can preach a mean sermon about imagining, the, you know, uh, alternate concepts of church but it's it's a different thing for me to actually then like go play in a session meeting where we spell out what an alternate concept of church might be yeah um so it, and because this is where i come from and this is what i know and this is kind of who i've been shaped to be uh anyway right and as and as ministers at this point in our careers like we have actually a little bit more self-interest in keeping this Oh, system sure. the way it is you know just to, just like i you know i gotta earn money i gotta put a kid through college i got i got bills to pay if right. you change this change this too much and i might be out of a job like i might right. not be any good at what's going to happen next right and i have a particular set of skills right right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right right all right matt what's your post loop so i'm halfway through a book that i had missed previously which is a 2010 book by reef larson called the selected works of t.s spivet do you know this one no i haven't heard of it this was made into a 2013 movie that i didn't register at all so i, I can't decide whether i missed something or whether it just all went under the radar uh this book is it's about a young boy living in modern day montana who is kind of a map prodigy uh, and a diagram prodigy and then he gets a phone call inviting him to present at the Smithsonian. And so he goes off by himself on a very kind of Mark Twainian journey across the country. Uh, I, I don't even know where this is going because I'm only halfway through. What I want to talk about, though, is the presentation. Because the book is only kind of about its characters. It's also about the page layout. 
I mean, the book is littered with maps oh, and I illustrations and graphs to show T.S.'s kind of diagrammatic understanding of the sequences of events happening around him and to him. So not just where he is in Montana, but a diagram that shows, you know, how his parents relate to each other or how he, you know, a, how the arrangement of the house or v various kinds of plot details that are then spelled out in prose and then kind of in what are basically his marginal notes. Uh, wow, it feels like cool. this. It feels like the sort of thing you could only publish in 2010 or recently. It wouldn't have been possible for most of the history of the printing press because, you know, we can only do that with the extinction of movable type and the digitization of publishing. You couldn't have mass produced something with this layer. Of, right. It would have been prohibitively expensive to right. do this. Yeah. So, so I find this fascinating because for centuries the restrictions of movable type mean that when we talked about the printed page, we were talking about words. And to some degree, the history of Reformed theology runs through that assumption. With less interest than we should have had, and like the long history of illuminated manuscripts or marginal commentary or diacritical marks, all the sort of things that the printing press and the, the, reform, the Reformation that followed from it in some ways couldn't manage. And, but that stuff was always there. And so I'm just kind of enjoying, I'm having a moment of enjoying marginal notes. Uh, this week, I got to go visit an original Gutenberg Bible, which wow. is on display at UT Austin's Ransom Library. And what it shows, of course, is a page, they've got it open to a page full of marginal notes, which is not the story about the Gutenberg Bible that we normally tell. We normally tell a story about Bibles that all of a sudden got to go home into, into, um, into home use and personal devotional reading. But this one has got notes for worship and notes for congregational use and when people start speaking together and when the leader speaks. Just like any decently well-loved Bible, this one for this one, the meaning doesn't just come through the words. It comes through all the accumulation of notes and highlights and questions that are in the margins and through the work of the Spirit that binds those into something that helps and challenges us. So... That's my mar That's my wandering thought. My marginal note is about margin notes. Please, folks, doodle in your Bibles. It's important. Right. Yeah. But I think it's it's part and parcel of the way that we talk about the Bible. We talk about this thing as this living document, right? And what's more static than just the printed page? It, sure. it actually doesn't move at all. But we have we still have writing utensils. We still have these things that we can write. And in some ways, they're. Um, it's a wonderful way to think about history because history you like there's at some point someone was writing this to meet the need of that day of, of something that was going on. And it feels very tangible. Like you're, you're going back. I mean, I, my sitting next to the desk here, I have a, uh, my wife's book of common worship. And part of my, part of the thing I love about that is that it doesn't have marginal notes, but there are pages where you open it, uh, especially in the communion pages, and there are crumbs hmm. from previous communions. Yeah. And it's just, it's a very powerful symbol to me of this liturgy and what's going on in this liturgy. And it's, but it's, it's akin to this marginal note. It's a moment in history when something happened and it, this, uh, and we are sort of time, we're having time fold in on itself. And I, I think when we write in our Bibles, that actually happens again. I love finding old Bibles with people's writing notes in them and yeah. just trying to recreate what would happen to make that make a person write what they wanted to write there. It's it's fascinating. That's super cool. Cool. So that about gets us to the end. 
Uh, one more thanks from Adam and me to Bromley McClanahan for hanging out with us today. If you want yeah, to hear more you. from Bromley, check out her book, Good Christian Sex, and we'll put links to her work up on our show notes at christiancentury.org. So next episode, Adam, I'm pretty, pretty excited about this. We are hanging out with a fellow podcaster, uh, Josh Larson of the Film Spotting Podcast and yeah, author of Movies Are Prayers. Uh, so we've got Josh. Uh, we've got uh, Josh's voice here to give us our marching orders for the week. Hey, Matt and Adam. This is Josh Larson from Film Spotting and author of Movies Are Prayers. Looking forward to being on the show soon where we can talk about Field of Dreams as a prayer of obedience. Talk to you guys in a bit. Feel the dreams, Adam. I know you love a good sports movie. Uh, I do love a good basketball movie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I haven't seen Feel the Dreams in ages. Um, uh, we'll see. I, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna go into this movie with uh, with my critical lens fully turned off of what I think it's about and try and watch it again for the first time. Don't worry. As a as a thirty something white American male, it, the movie is already hard coded into your DNA. So you only kind of have to just turn it on and then let yourself just be in communion with the film. I know. I will do my very best. I also have a severe allergy to nostalgia in any sort. So we'll see. You know. You know. I never played catch with my dad. <laughs> well, maybe if you build it, he will come, Adam. We'll try it. Well. That's good advice. I'm going to go in my backyard and, and mow, a, uh, mow a baseball diamond into it. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. And if you like us, leave a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps other folks find the show. Special thanks this week to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, the sound wizard who is helping us out a lot right now. Our new theme music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Space Cabin. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back, man. <laughs> <laughs>